We'll continue in our series on, on the foundational doctrines, theological foundation for life. I am a thorough believer that every single area of theology has a practical application. Now, the teacher and the preacher may do a bad job showing that, but the scriptures, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture are profitable for rebuke, for teaching, for doctrine, for exhortation, so that the man of God and the people of God may be complete to every good work. So if all Scripture is profitable, and if we're getting our theology from the Scriptures, whatever theological formulation we, can come, we come up with must also have a life application. Last week we talked about creation, and that's obvious, uh, an obvious life application, that if God created all things, which He did, and He created all of us, which He did, then He gets to tell us what to do because He owns all things. And it's easy to show from the Scripture. Psalm 24 says that. Uh, Romans says that, and so on. So uh, we see that. Today, this morning, we're going to talk about another doctrine that's a twin doctrine with the doctrine of creation, and it's the doctrine of providence. When we talk about the, the, the decrees of God, we're, that's, those are the two doctrines that we're talking about, doctrine of creation and doctrine of providence. All the ways that God interacts with us and His creation and this world and so on fall under one of those two doctrines. So you can see that these are huge big headings under which you're going to have a lot of other headings. So let me, uh, here is a pop quiz. If these two doctrines are talking about everything that has to do with God's relationship with us, with His creation, with the world, what doctrines do not fall under these two headings? If these doctrines are describing how God interacts with creation, what doctrines do not fall? Adam. Trinity. The Trinity, yes. Andrew? There's a Seity. There's a Seity. Amy? Oh, no. I... She was hitting me. Yeah. Just, yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> Betsy must be in nursery, so somebody else has to hit you. Yeah. yeah, so any doctrine that describes God's attributes that are not shared with creation. The other, uh, like his aseity, that is the fact that he's self-existence. The, the trinity, the description of God, uh, the, way, the fact that he doesn't change, his omniscience, his omnipotent, all the omnis uh, uh, fall outside of these two because they're describing who God is apart from creation. Now when you get to those attributes, those, those descriptions of God that we share in, in some ways, then that gets a little more confusing uh, because they will transcend these, uh, these categories. Because when you talk about the love of God, we are made in God's image and we're able to love, so we're sharing that. So some of the love of God falls under these categories and some uh, uh, doesn't. So, the, what particular attribute of God, what particular characteristic of God 
do you think dominates the doctrine of providence? His sovereignty, yes. I'm getting older. I'm 48. I can't hear as well. My reading lips uh, ability is not that great. Uh, so if you could speak up so I don't have to go, what? You know, uh, it would be great. So his sovereignty, yes. The attribute of God specially relating to, this, to his decrees and providence is his sovereignty. And his sovereignty is based on his omniscience, on his all-powerfulness, on his wisdom, and on his goodness. So here you have, it's difficult to talk about one attribute of God because they, are, they, 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 they don't exist by themselves. There's another doctrine about God that's called God's simplicity that tells us that God cannot be pulled apart. That God is always all things at all times everywhere. So God is not only present in His love, but not in His wrath. He's not present in His holiness, but not in His mercy. He's not present in His justice, but not in His goodness. God is always all these things, all the time. He's simple. Simple means that He cannot be divided. He cannot be pulled apart. He's not complex in that way. But we are going to, for the purpose of just learning more about Him, pull out His sovereignty as it relates to this doctrine of providence and look at that. Any questions so far? If you look at the ancient creeds of the church, they don't focus uh, so much as, on God as the one who provides for all things as they focus on God who is the creator. Remember how the Apostles' Creed begin? I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. The, if you look at the early creedal statements from the ecumenical councils, uh, uh, Nicaea, Ephesus, um, Constantinople, and Chalcedon, there's also that emphasis on God as the creator. Later creeds, especially the, in the Reformed tradition, there's also an, there's not only an emphasis as God of, as the creator, but also as God is the one who is the one who controls all things, who provides for all things. For example, in the Westminster Confession, um, chapter 3, paragraphs 1 and 2, we read, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. So I stop right there. Can you see how that influences the idea of providence, which is the, the, the doctrine that teaches that God governs and provides for all creation? Do you see that implication there? That, that He determined what was going to happen? It continues, And yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. We're going to break that out a little bit in a minute. It's a mouthful, but here it's clear that the confession itself teaches that God is in control of all things, which is a big part of the doctrine of providence. Um, this is the larger catechism. It asks, what are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of His will, 
whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. Right? So that's what God did. In eternity past, before he created anything, he foreordained, unchangeably says, there's not going to be a plan B, there's no uh, uh, variation in what God planned in eternity past. Whatever he planned then is going to come. Now, the baby version, that's a shorter catechism, question 7 says about the same thing with less words. Uh, as you know, when the assembly uh, wrote the larger catechism, it was meant for all people in the church to memorize. And the shorter catechism was for children and those not intelligent enough, that's what the preface says, not intelligent enough to memorize the larger catechism. Times have changed, right? It was, be, it was meant to be the very basics, basic beliefs of the Christian faith, and now we hold it as only the seminary students and the pastors are the ones that are going to look at that. The, uh, the Westminster Standards also deal with the doctrine of providence in particular. I don't know if you remember last week, Lois Anderson asked, can you define providence? I said, I define them today, but ask her, can you read chapter 5 of the confession? And you have a good definition there. It says, God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Um, and we'll look at paragraphs 2 and 3 later in the lesson, but that's what follows. I really like, just as, as a more succinct definition, Larger Catechism 18, what are the works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. So what is providence? Look at the ING words, right? Is preserving, governing, ordering. That, that's what providence is. That's what God is doing. He's preserving, he's governing, and he is ordering all their, uh, the, them, so the, the beings, and their actions. And providence relates to moral beings, right? That's, what providence, that's really what we're looking at in, in general. Though, it's also God's providence when a bird falls off the tree and so on. But the, the main focus is God's relationship to his moral beings. So be humans and Angels. That's the, the main focus of the doctrine of providence. So that's the creedal statement. That's what our confession says, our catechisms say. Let's take a look at what the scriptures say. And I, I, I would say right off the bat that they actually te- the, the, the confession and catechisms are a great summary of what the scriptures teach on this particular subject. And the Bible teaches that God has determined all things and that he controls all things that occur. One, one short verse that you want to memorize that I think it teaches that is Romans 11, 33. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So from him proceed all things. They only exist through him. And it is for his glory that, they, uh, that all things exist. So uh, this, this is a really good, just if you want to think of one verse, that's one of them. 
Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 is also a great uh, verse, if you just want to keep a, a couple passages in your mind regarding this, where there Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who does what? Works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, it, 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 the passage itself is about God's predestinating love toward us before the foundation of the world. But in stating that, he also, Paul also says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He just does whatever he wants, whatever is consistent with whom he is. And in Ephesians 1, he's decided, made, all these, made all these decisions prior to even the creation of the world. So, any questions before we continue? Tilly. Right. Um, it seems like one of the, the uh, questions that people have about providence and God being good is natural disasters are always right. Mm-hmm. That falls well understood. Right. So what well, it says that providence regards all these things, but as the confession describes it, it focuses more on the, his control over moral agents, both humanity, not just his people, humanity and angels. Those are moral creatures. Renee. That means God is also in charge of people's sinful actions. That's correct. We'll see that in a second. Any other questions or comments before we continue? All right, so what are the realms of God's sovereignty? Everywhere, all realms is the realms of God's sovereign over everything. So it's important that we realize that, that God is not just sovereign in general. Most people everywhere, most Christians everywhere would be able to say, are willing to say God is sovereign in this abstract, general way. But God is sovereign in all the various areas of existence in particular. For example, God is sovereign over nature. Can you think of passages in the Bible that teaches that God is sovereign over nature? Genesis 1, okay, the creation, yes. What else? When he made the sun stand still in Joshua. Right, uh, uh, well, in, um, in, in Joshua, when they were fighting on the promised land, he made the sun stand still. What else? The flood. Yeah, if you go to Genesis 6 through 9, the flood and all the different events that are going on there. Yes, uh, did you say something, Heather? Jesus' power over the uh, storm and the weather and over um, people's physical malady, right? What else? The parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea, yes. What else? The, 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 the girl voice and then the boy voice. The plagues on Egypt, that's a major one that we have to keep in mind, okay? Exodus 7 through 11, because what God is doing there, so each plague is associated with an Egyptian god. And what God is saying is that, no, these false gods are in charge of nothing. I am in charge of all these things. Brandon, you say something? Uh, the burning bush. The burning bush, yes. Uh, if you were to read Psalm 104, verses 10 through 30, there is a poetic, a poetic rendition of creation and of God's control over nature. Uh, there it talks about God being in control of the weather, the plants, the animals, and the physical activities of man. 
One more. There's one, one major book in the Old Testament. that Jonah, yes, Jonah. Uh, what God is sovereign over the great fish. His fault. Excuse me, I didn't mean to spit on you, Ellie. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's sovereign over the, the plant, the vine that grows. He's sovereign over the sun that brings the heat. He's sovereign over the, the worm. Yeah, and the storm, too, that comes and comes to destroy um, the, uh, the tree, the, the vine. So God is sovereign over nature. God is also sovereign over trivial events, the so-called chance events. Can you think of passages in the Bible that teaches that God is sovereign over the trivial chances that we think, oh, this is an accident, this is just happened by chance? Danita. Right. The king just happened to be reading about the Mordecai the day before Mordecai was supposed to, to die. All right. What else? I can't remember where she Glean just happens to glean in Boaz's field. Right. Ruth just happened to glean in Boaz. Was that you, Ezra? Was going to say something? Yeah, I can't remember who, but when the arrow strikes right. the armor. It's 1 Kings 22, 23 and, 20, 23 and then 34, where the prophet says, King, you're going to die in the battlefield. And then it says that, remember the whole story? The king of Israel said, King of Judah, Jehoshaphat, you dress up like the king. And I'll dress up like a soldier. It's going to be good. And Jehoshaphat, uh uh-huh. And then the troops are chasing Jehoshaphat. And then says that somebody just randomly pulled the string on the bowl and let an arrow go. And the arrow just happened to hit Ahab. And it was right between the links on his armor. And that was the end of it. Completely random, as we would describe, a chance event, and that is what happens. Brian, are you going to add something else? Right, on the more uh, simple, yeah. Um, Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap. So here, people playing dice, and they throw, and there is the lot cast. But it's every decision is from the Lord. And then remember what Jesus tells his disciples to comfort him? Um, regarding the sparrows, right? The, in, in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Just the death of a bird seems to be such a random event. That is under the sovereignty of God. God is also sovereign over circumstances and affairs of individuals or nations. Another uh, a story that's far, full of it just happened, it just happened, is the story of Hannah, actually. And, and Joseph, too, but the, Hannah, uh, we saw a few weeks ago in Hannah chapter 2. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raise up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low the exo- and, and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So he, God comes sovereign over the individual affairs of each person, but also the collective affairs of nations. Nothing happens 
outside of God's control as far as the nations go. And we tend to think that God's in control when things are good and that somehow God lost control when the, the rulers are not to our liking. And yet God is as much in control when there's a ruler that we like as when he's a ruler we don't like. And he's as much able to make a ruler be like cow, a cow like he did to Nebuchadnezzar today as he was back in the day. He's in control of all these things. Paul says in, in Acts 17, 24 and 26, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places and so on. God, is in, God decided what the geopolitical boundaries are today. God decided where people live, and this is all under his sovereignty. So God is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over the trivial events of life. He's sovereign over every circumstances of the individual lives, but also of the lives of nations. Any questions before we continue? All right, God is also sovereign over free actions of people. Now, what is a free action? Includes sin. Anything you do, right? Because I don't think any of us goes and then start doing things. Uh, and then, you know, if somebody else doing uh, for us. So God is, off, uh, is also sovereign of the free actions of people. And it's people in general, not just his people. In Exodus 12, 33, 36, it says, The Lord gave, uh, had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Did the Egyptians freely give the things to the Israelites? Yes. Why? Because God, God caused that to happen. Both are present here. God is sovereign over the free actions of people, and yet it, they are the free actions of people. In 2 Samuel 17, verse 14, it says... Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Hithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Hithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm to Absalom. So what's going on here? Remember the story? You have these, uh, this one individual that was David's most faithful counselor, and he decided to betray David and stay with Absalom. And then David said to the other guy, You go and you throw a wrench in any advice that Hithophel gives and, and God said, I'll cause them to believe the wrong advice. And yet they freely believed in that wrong advice. Romans 9, 17 through 18, here Paul is quoting Exodus 9, 16, and says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, and that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Pharaoh freely kept Israel from leaving because God sovereignly caused that to happen. Are you with me still? All right, so let's get now, um, let's start talking about the stuff that we have most trouble with, and that is the moral agency, moral actions of people. So we're okay with God being sovereign over my taking this step. Right? That, that's okay. We, we, we don't think about that. We're okay with God being sovereign over the bird falling from the tree. 
But the Bible also teaches that God is sovereign over the moral agents, uh, moral actions. So something that has a value, whether it's righteous or sinful, God is sovereign over those actions as well. Adam, Newton. It's already getting to be um, a mind bender. Um, yes. Um, those individuals that you mentioned, they thought they were free. And maybe that's all, that, all that's necessary, that they believe that they were free. No, the Bible does say that... So that's, that's a... Let me, let me back up a bit. If we had a God that we completely comprehend, that's, that's, comprehension is different than understanding. Comprehension is like a, an absolute thing. If we had a God that we absolutely comprehended, he would not be a God. He'd be just like one of us. So we have to be willing to live with this tension that we have a God who is infinitely greater than us. Therefore, we're not going to understand everything about him. His Bible, his word, teaches that he's absolutely in control of everything. And that you, Adam Newton, is absolutely free to do whatever you want. Those two things are taught in the Bible. How they, are, how they completely work together, there's some explanations. None of them 100% sort of satisfying. But that's a tension that's there because of who God is and our Finitude is not even an issue of sin. Sin compiles that, but it's the issue of our finitude that gets there. So it's not that just they, they believed that they were free. They were free. And yet God appointed those things to happen as well. And it's key that we keep those things as a reality because the Bible also teaches that God is not guilty of his people's, of people's sins. So those two things have to... We have to... I'd be okay with those two things, even though we may not be able to conceive any har- uh, harmonization. Uh, you know, Spurgeon used to say that you don't have to reconcile friends. It sounds beauty, but it's not, not satisfying. But that's really the idea, that they, 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 these are not contradictions. They're just, perhaps, at best, paradoxes. That because of our finitude, our finite minds, we can't really bring them to, uh, together as we would love to. Okay? Any other, before we actually get to the hard stuff? <laughs> Doug. Uh, Luther in his bondage of the will was you know, kind of the locus classicus of this whole mm-hmm. topic uh, with uh, this, this debate with Erasmus. And uh, Erasmus kept trying to spin what Luther was saying, which is, is providence and, and God's sovereignty over all things, uh, even the actions of human beings, um, into compulsion. So he kept... He kept pounding that drum when you're saying that God compels people to do things against their will. Mm-hmm. And Luther made the distinction between compulsion, which is you know, God coming in, this person wants to be good, or this person wants to do this, and God says, no, you're not going to do that, you're going to do this, mm-hmm. uh, into the necessity of mutability, he called it, which is, which is that people act according to their nature. Right. And, and our nature is in bondage to sin. Right. So, you know, we're, 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 people are freely acting within their nature and they're, yeah. they're doing what they want within their nature, God sovereignly right. presiding over all, but yeah. not with compulsion outside of their nature. Right, so uh, Doug's talking about uh, the freedom, the bondage of the will by Luther was written in response to the freedom of the will by Erasmus in which Erasmus said, if what you're saying Luther is true, that means that we're all robots. That's kind of, I mean, that's that's not the language he used, but in essence that's what 
you know, and that you can't be accountable for anything. And Luther said, no, we do not act in opposition to our character. Who we are in our hearts, that's what controls our will. And our confession has a whole chapter on the freedom of, of free will. They explain exactly that, that the Reformed faith believes that man, humanity has free will bound only to his or her own heart. And whatever the heart desires and wants and does, that's what it will do. Nobody acts in contradiction to who they are. So God doesn't force anybody to come to him, to believe in him, or God doesn't force anybody to sin. And yet he's sovereign and ordained those things from eternity past as well. Renee. Yes, he is. And he, there, there are things that are true, right? That uh, God says, well, Adam, if you sin, you will die. Well, that came to pass. That was true. And everybody has died, which means everybody has a sinful heart. And God can put measures in place to, have, to make things happen. It seems like our natural or logical laws, even though he is actively every moment preserving everything and controlling everything as well. All right, so let's first establish that he is in control over sin and then try to make some sort of application from that. So God is sovereign over moral actions of his creatures. He's sovereign over the sinful actions of his creatures. Can you think of a passage, Tilly, or a story in the Bible, Tilly, that since you've been mousing that one for a while now? Joseph. Joseph, yes. Joseph, in, in Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8, this is Joseph speaking, and he says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He says, You sold me here, but it was God doing that as well. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five yet, uh, yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Do you see there the tension you have? You, sent, you sold me into slavery. You did something that was sinful, and that, and that was God's sending me here. The, 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 the two things being true there... As well, uh, in in Second uh, Samuel chapter twenty four, verse one, we read this: Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, "Go number Israel and Judah." Remember the story? God said, "Don't count the people." That's sinful to count people, and uh, perhaps the main reason is so that you don't trust in the strength of your army, but you trust in and God, and God is going to judge the people, and he's going to judge that by inciting David to count the people, so that judgment comes upon them. And then David goes on and counts the people, and then judgment comes because of the sinful action of David. In, in uh, First Chronicles, it's interesting that states there that Satan tempted David to sin, while Second Samuel says that God incited David to sin, which teaches that God is also in control of whom? Satan. Satan only does the bidding of God. Satan doesn't have authority to undermine God's sovereignty. Which was the greatest sin ever committed? The crucifixion. 
And in Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking and says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So why was Jesus delivered? Because God ordained it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God was sovereign over the greatest sin ever committed, but not only sovereign in the moment, he actually foreordained from all eternity. And yet, when it happened, who did it? You crucified him, Peter says, with your wicked hands. And you find that in the preaching of the apostles throughout Acts. In Acts chapter 3, Peter repeats the same sort of idea. In Acts chapter 4, he repeats that as well. In all that, it's important to realize that while God is sovereign of all events, even simple events, the actual sin arises in the heart of the free moral creature. God cannot sin, nor can he tempt his creatures to sin. Because that's what James 1, verses 13 to 15, tell us. So God is sovereign of all things, even of our sin, but he's not guilty of our sins. God made me do it, doesn't work. Satan made me do it, doesn't work. We are the ones that are guilty of our own sins. Questions or comments? Renee. So God moved David to simply count the people of Israel, but he doesn't tempt us to sin? Correct. Yes. And um, in that, so, so let me put it a different way. God actively allowed David to, do, to express his own heart. Is that a little easier to conceive of that? So God actively allowed David to express his own heart. So, anything else? Any other questions on this? All right. God is also sovereign over the good actions. Uh, right? We, we, uh, that, that's also a truth that we have to understand. Uh, remember what love, long-suffering, peace, self-control, what, what are those things? They're fruit of the Spirit, right? Not works of our righteousness, but the fruit of the Spirit. So he is also sovereign over the good actions of his people. Uh, remember what Ephesians 2.10 says that describes who we are in Christ? We are God's what? Workmanship created for what? And where, what, what about those good works? Prepared for us in Christ Jesus, right? That we should walk beforehand, that we should walk in them. Okay, so these are the realms of God's Sovereignty. How about the means? How's, how does God exercise his sovereignty in life and the means of God's providence? So God is absolute in his sovereignty. He does not depend on any action of his creature in order to determine what he will do. Now, his will is not conditional. It, it doesn't change. It's, 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 it's something that he does and has done according to his own will and glory. On the other hand, God does act through means. Our confession, as we read earlier, talks about the liberty or contingency of second causes. And that um, his decrees can fall out from second causes, either necessarily, freely, and contingently. I think these three words actually made into a skit at camp, because the theme of camp was providence. 
this is to say that events he has determined may be brought about by what we would call ordinary means. And there are very different levels of ordinary means. There, there are necessary means. The, the event follows as a matter of necess- necessary consequence uh, or, or law. You think of an event that might just be a one event is necessary because of the way that God set up creation, the world. Right. It's a necessary event because of gravity. gravity. The, the, apple fall, the, the falling to the earth is a necessary event because God set up gravity. Um, Jonah's vine dying because the worm attacked it. Right? It says clearly there that the vine died because the worm ate it. No, God bought the worm. In, but that's a, that's a natural, necessary consequence. If a worm eats your plant, it, the plants die. Okay, Andrew. When I was teaching this with the youth, I said that necessarily could think of the laws of nature. Right, and, and, but not only the yeah, if we include logic in it as well. Okay. So that's what is meant there by... Uh, consequence or law, right? Um, generally speaking, if you murder somebody, you go to jail. That's a necessary consequence of that, um, and, and so on. If A is this, A cannot be the opposite of that. That's a necessary consequence of logic, the law of non-contradiction. But there's freely as well. The event follows as a matter of free choice under a given set of circumstances. For example, Paul's thorn in the flesh. Right? Why did... Remember, what, what did the thorn in the flesh in Paul result in, in his life? First, uh, 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that. Yes, dependence on the Lord and humility. Those are the two things that, uh, that Paul says. That's why they're there. Dependence on the Lord and humility. Now, is that guaranteed that everybody that has a thorn in the flesh will have that result in their lives? Will some people rebel against God. Some people get mad against God. Some people resist. So um, it, worked, it worked that way to Paul because that was the response of his heart, the free response of his heart. It may not work the same way on other people. Pharaoh's decision not to let Israel go no, and lying to Moses every time. No, that could be that if there was an honest Pharaoh, he would have kept his promise and people go. So it's dependent on the person, on, on the heart that is there. So it's freely uh, uh, a result of the free actions of people. How about contingently? The event depends upon another event before it can occur. So, have you ever heard the idea of multiverse? It doesn't exist, by the way. The Bible says it doesn't exist. Sorry to all your flesh fans. Um, <laughs> thanks, Heather. Heather knows what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, but, yeah, but God does know what could have happened if people had taken this other route here. Right? That's, those are the if-then statements. Remember when David is in Caleb, the city, and he consults the, the Urim and the Thummim and asks, are the people of Caleb going to give me up to Saul? Remember what the answer was? The answer was yes. 
So what did they do? do? He left. Paul was on the way to Cale, heard that David left, and then he just went back wherever he was. So that's a contingency. If David had stayed, Saul would have uh, taken over and, and killed him. But he didn't stay, therefore Saul didn't come. So even those contingent events are part of God's providence, and he's in control of those Things. He not only knows what really is going to happen, but also what could have happened if things were different. Any questions? Right. If you later on you want to know why multiverses are not possible, we can talk it over lunch. Now, in, in spite of the, uh, the normal use of means in God's providence, that's how God usually works, it's a, matter, a lot of times we don't like that, but our God is a God of the ordinary. He works regularly through means and so on, but that does not mean that he cannot directly act and uh, immediately, as opposed to through mediation of laws and whatever, act in the world. Uh, unlike the idea of deism, which was a, a short-lived description of God that kind of hovered around time-wise, the, the, the foundation of this, this country as, as a nation, uh, we believe that God is intimately and actively involved with history. And if he chooses so, he can intervene in history whenever he wants. He can heal people directly if he chooses to do so, apart from the means of medicine or whatever. He can do all these things. So the doctrine of providence doesn't deny that. But the doctrine of providence teaches that God works generally through the ordinary to the little moments of life, to the things that happen regularly and often incrementally as well instead of radically and uh, supernaturally, as we'd say a miracle is supernatural. But even providence is a work of God in the sense that Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that everything stays the way they are. Everything's kept together by the word of the power of Christ, the powerful word of Christ. So not only is this world created by the word of God, is also preserved and maintained by the word of God. And God is faithful to never go back on his word. Any questions before we finish today? All right. We'll try to go for something easier last week, like superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism. No, we're not going to consider those two things not quite foundational <laughs> to the Christian faith. Renee. So I'm assuming you're talking about the Thessalonian epistles, talk about this restrainer. Um, it's more than what we have time for now because you have first to figure out what that restrainer is, right? And there's different ways of understanding. Is that civil law? Is that the Holy Spirit? And so on. Um, but what we, I can, what we can say is that God is gracious, uh, the doctrine of common grace. God is gracious of this creation. And his common grace keeps people from being as bad as they could be, the, un, the unbeliever to be. So that's a... a but at the same time, they're going to be judged because of, for resisting, for not turning to God, even though he's been benevolent and gracious toward them. Andrew, quickly. So the way you approach the doctrine of providence and some of the tension between God being sovereign over all things, yet humans being free agents who commit sinful actions contrary to the will of God is by saying, the Bible says this, we need to believe that. The Bible says this, we need to believe that. Right. The confession seems to be doing that as well. Correct. Asserting this, asserting that, not trying to reconcile it. 
Do you think that's the standard reformed explanation or approach to upholding that? It is, since that's what the, both the three forms of unity and the Westminster standards say, and that's, those are the standard reformed confessions. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the sense that it doesn't like explicitly say, this is true, this is true, we don't necessarily attempt to reconcile that. But, so I guess it's that, that, that place of saying, we don't have to explain how they go together. I guess that, the part, since that kind of language isn't explicit, it's more implied in the confession. Right? Yes. I yeah. thought I said exactly, almost like this, the same words. Yes. Yes, whatever Andrew said. That's, that's what I said earlier, too. So, yeah. All right, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you for um, your sovereign uh, rule over all things. Uh, it's, it's difficult to understand you, and rightly so, and we're thankful for that, uh, in, in, to understand you comprehensively and absolutely. And we thank you that we're not you and that you're not finite like us. Uh, we pray that we'd rejoice in that, and that would drive us to worship you for us in Jesus' name. Amen.